Australian Herb to Culture Podcast. How you going, Luke? Yeah, good, mate. Good. We've got a brewing episode here lined up with a couple of fellas. So we've got Rob yeah. from Monsoon Monitors and we've got uh, Scott Eifer from Nature For You on. We're going to do some large monitor talk. So welcome to the show again, guys. Thank Today, you. Uh, welcome back. I'm, I'm looking forward to this because today I managed to spot two lace monitors and finally got my unicorn, which was a Heath monitor. So, yeah, very stoked to finally see some of these guys cruising around in the bush. Well, you don't find them from your fucking living room. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. No, that's for sure. I wasn't actually expecting to find them at all. I was just, just going for a stroll with the missus and happened to get all three and I was like, oh man, this is awesome. You know, I've got to bring her out more often. She seems to be a good luck charm for some of these bushwalks. So also you got a Sandy as well. You got the trifecta for Sydney. Oh no no not a Sandy. I got a two lace monitors and a Heath monitor. Yeah, because you get Sandy's on the right on the edge and west edge western edge of Sydney. Yeah. Well I'm right on the eastern side of Sydney, so where I was anyway. Oh, no, it was, it was good to see him. I couldn't believe seeing the Heath monitor. I've been wanting to see one of those guys for about six years now, so it was awesome to finally spot one. And let alone, I actually was able to get down to about 50 centimetres away from it too, and it was quite chilled, so it's cool to see it up close like that. Yeah, yeah okay. It would, how did you creep up on it? Was it alert or was it just quiet? Or what he, he was walking across the road as I was actually taken off in the car ready to leave this area. And um, as soon as I saw it, I was probably 30 metres away from it. And then I decided to get out of the car, hit hit go on the camera and walked up on it. And he saw me coming and then just he crouched down in some long grass and just watched me. And as soon as I kind of stood up again, he took off and flew into the bush. But, yeah, no, he didn't seem to care too much. It was just as soon as I got that little bit too close, he decided that was enough. Lace monitors, they both went up trees pretty quick. So in typical lacy fashion. I think that's the one thing about monitors is it if you pick the distance you can observe them from, particularly with a lot of the large ones, as long as you don't run at them or anything like that and anything silly and you creep up to them quietly and give them their space and just watch their body language, you can often follow them for fucking ages. Yeah. You know, Parentes and Panoptes and Sandies and all that sort of stuff. If you give them enough space... They will just wander along and do their thing, particularly, you know, if it's a, an area where they're used to seeing people. It's shit like easier. But um, the minute you get too close and you see that girl pulsing in the throat and that, and they just go, nah, that's it, I'm off. Or they do a little run, and if you sort of do a bit of a run after them, that's it, they're, they're gone and you won't, yep. won't sort of see them again. But um, if you spend a bit of time and just sort of watch what the monitor's doing and don't get too close, after five or ten minutes, you can usually get quite close to them anyway. They'll let you get a bit closer and a bit closer and a bit closer, and then, you know, that'll be it. Yeah. Well, hopefully we get the opportunity to do that to a few monitors in less than two weeks, not that we're counting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, hopefully get some, some glebos and stuff up that way, which would be cool. I reckon I've heard women who are pregnant for the first time talk less about their pregnancy than you two bastards talk about this <laughs> If you can't tell, we're a little bit excited. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. It's, it's good that you're excited, but bloody hell. <laughs> well, we can't fast forward the clock, so we're just yeah. uh, we're excited any moment we get to mention it. We're uh, sticking at the bit. thing is, is it'll blow you as mind. You don't, you can't understand how much it blows your mind until you get out and see these things in the scrub. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, you start to see one of those things in the wild and it just and get to fall and watch it and all the rest of it. It's just you feel the heat and the humidity and it's just amazing. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, yep. I can't wait. Can't wait. The third trip back to the NT, so I can't wait. That's uh yeah, I think it's in my blood now to just go back up to those areas and stuff, especially around the top end. I love it up there. It's beautiful. All right, guys, so let's um let's crack on anyway. Uh, enough of the niceties, and we'll get started in some of this um, monitor talk. So basically, we want to go through a bit of a run-through because Jason and I don't have any monitor experience when it comes to the larger stuff. Well, you know, I've got a mangrove, but that's about as big as it's gotten for me, and there's a lot bigger out there. So um, we kind of want to chat to you guys about how you guys go about caring for these things and sort of like requirements and that that you guys believe to be pretty necessary for these animals to really do the, the justice that they deserve. Um and I suppose we, we probably want to start off just by listing some of the, the larger Australian monitors that you've both kept or keep in captivity currently. So maybe, Rob, if you want to start us off with some of the larger species that you've got there. Um, all right. Well, I've got Parenti, obviously. Um, I've got a trio and a pair of those now. So uh, this year I got my first eggs out of the younger uh, pair. And oh, uh, the trio I only got a few weeks ago. So... Um, yeah, hopefully it'll be a good season coming up. Um, but I've got a whole bunch of pits I've still got to build. Um, over the wet, I've got to get them done, sorted before it even starts to oh, – sorry, over the dry. I've got to sort of get them started before it even starts to warm up again. Um, played a bit of havoc with some other species this, this year, taking too long to build a new shed and, and whatnot. Um, I've got some panoptes now. Um, two of them are pretty much up to breeding age and um, the other pair are just a bit smaller at the moment, so they're doing pretty well. Um, Sandies, I bred them last year and bred them this year. Um, they're doing pretty well. They're quite fun to keep, um, pretty interactive, and uh, I actually really love the little guys. Um, I held back quite a few from last year, so uh, the new pits go in. I'm looking forward to moving the adults into there and put little ones back into the small into the, the adults' enclosure. Um what else are the large ones? Got the Mertens. Um, they're awesome to keep. They're one of my favourite monitors. And um, I'm hoping they'll drop eggs again in the next month or two. Um, she's starting to look rabid and um, had a bit of a heart attack this week. I thought I would get one of the smaller chicken drumsticks and slice, off, slice the meat right down at the back so I could flop around. And I broke all the bone up into it and I gave it to her. And uh, the male grabbed it and ran off with it and um, he was just being guts and he got stuck in his throat and spewed it back up. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's monitors. <laughs> At least they're not chasing each other around the enclosures. Um, the mangroves are really nasty for that. I've got um, two that I've grown up since they're about 20 centimetres. And, um, yeah, the male's got a real attitude about him. You start putting food in and... They don't even go after the food. They just chase each other for about half an hour. They don't care yeah. about the food. It's just a matter of this food there. So um, the interesting thing is they're actually pretty switched on. Um, if you go in there and, well, I probably look like a lunatic. I go in there and I yell at him and point at him and tell him to stop, you know, fucking around. And he flicks his tail at me a bit, hisses a bit, then he wanders off and actually goes quiet and then she eats. So... It's not too bad. <laughs> you, you wouldn't think they would do that, but, uh, yeah, they're actually pretty switched on if you start to try and work with them in that way. Um, 
geez, what else is big? My heath is still well, my heath's still new. I had that nasty um, issue where I they got the size to put them in an outdoor aviary. Then I moved in some logs that I had sitting outside that I'd just done a big swap with, and um, one tiny, tiny little toad had gotten to that log, and um, yeah, knocked out two of them. And for at first, I thought it might have been the heat because these uh, outdoor aviaries are. I really hot box them. Um, being up in Coranda here, we get some really low temps, um, and it was sort of still the beginning of. Um, oh, geez, it wasn't even before the beginning of the wet season, so we'll still get temps down to 10C, um, 12C. So I really wanted to try and hot box them a bit, and I started worrying that when we had a um, nice, you know, hot week that that overheated. Um, so I pulled that female. Uh, so I pulled the little female out that survived and put it back inside, you know, freaking out a bit, thinking this isn't right because obviously in Sydney it gets a lot hotter than it does here. Um, but yeah, it turned out when I went to go move uh, one of the small panos into that enclosure, um, I flipped up the water tray and found just the smallest toad there. I'm like, you bastard. So yeah, things go wrong. Things definitely go wrong, especially the bigger monitors. Yeah. Um, now, what else is on the larger side that I've got? Obviously, I don't believe over they sort of borderline Dartria. Um, Spencers, I do not have yet. Um, sort of more waiting on a mate to finish breeding some stuff. And again, I'm sort of, I, I've maxed out a lot of my space right now. I've got two Averys that are about to go in once I do the slab, and then I've got all these pits. But yeah, right now I'm sort of like holding off to uh, get a bit more of the bigger stuff. But there's not much more to get, really, is there? <laughs> No, it sounds like you've got pretty much the. Oh, sorry, already. Lacy's, I forget about them. <laughs> no, you can't forget them, mate. They're, <laughs> they're one of the most impressive ones. Yeah. Uh, what about, about you, Scott? Sorry. What about you, Scott? Um. Oh, look. These days, we're the only large monitors that we're keeping are Parentes and Lacy's, uh, but we've previously kept Panoptes, Sandys, Mertens. Um, Spencer's, um, Heath's, so we kept all that stuff as well. Um, you know, you lost a, you were saying you lost a Heath to a uh, to a toad. I lost a Parenti. So, oh, I remember seeing that a while ago. It's oh, oh, yeah, I couldn't imagine that. And it's not, it's not the fact that the animal died from a toad. It's the fact that the keeping, the you know, the keeping our responsibility as a keeper has allowed. Yeah that to happen and you know whether it's it's got in through a bloody log or it's got in via a bit of soil or your your lip wasn't high enough fucking whatever it's just it just guts you it really does and it's yeah i mean it's what it is that's that's the one of the hardest things about keeping keeping these things outside is actually setting up your enclosure the right way and setting up your enclosure not only for a large monitor but to make sure that the things that can potentially hurt that large monitor can't hurt that monitor. Is that your responsibility, what it comes down to? So while, you know, indoor keeping has got its challenges, outdoor keeping has also got a whole swag of challenges as well. And, oh yeah, um, you know, for, for me, I mean, look, I'm really lucky. I mean, I, I do about 30% of the husbandry of the reptiles here, the other 70% has done for my wife. Um, so, you know, we've got people that are looking at them all the time. So if it's not me, it's her. Uh, and she spends a hell of a lot of time with our, our animals. Um, 
we spent a fair bit of money on the enclosures and setting them up the right way. Um, but that was almost through trial and error, learning all the way through that, no, you don't build it like this because if you build it like this, this goes wrong or that goes wrong. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I never thought would have been so huge, which I found is actually a massive consideration in southeast Queensland and would be a shitload worse up in where Rob is at Coranda, is rain. Warm yep. rain is a huge issue because if the animals can't get completely dry and warm, and you know if they if they dry and warm, they're okay. If they're dry and cold, they tend to be okay as well. But the minute they are wet and cool is the minute that that animal that should be able to survive theoretically at that temperature gets a respiratory infection is gone, and it's gone in days, weeks. Yeah, you know and. You know, for us, it's it's tough because we you know we keep parentes outside, and realistically, I think they're one monitor that privately you have to keep outside. I don't think you can really house them properly inside; they're too big. Yeah. Um, as much as that's going to potentially upset a few people, um, you know, the you need to keep them outside. So if you're going to keep them outside, you need to have your enclosures set up in such a way that that animal does okay outside. Um, I've got no dramas in keeping parentes inside till they get sort of four feet long, but the minute they're hitting four feet long, they've got to be outside because to try and heat that size monitor effectively and to provide the proper lighting yeah. for a monitor of that size, um, you, you're going to have major issues. Now, whether or not you need UV, A, UVB, I think I'm pretty pretty staunch on it that it is a it is a definite requirement you might be able to get away with it with some of uh by feeding with smaller stuff but with the bigger stuff they really need that yeah. that proper uv um and it's not only the uv it's not just uvb that they they need they also need the uva because the uva has different uh, penetrative qualities and and changes to the causes chemical changes in the physiology and all sorts of things, but we'll probably crack onto that later because this has gone from being a bit of an introduction into going down a few wormholes real fast. Nothing wrong with wormholes, though. <laughs> That's why we're letting you guys run with it, but, yeah, we'll try to, try to get it back onto track. So um, just something to kind of get into just before maybe we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode is, um, you know, it's probably pretty important to talk about the responsibility that it takes to care for these animals correctly in captivity. Do you both want to just start off with your thoughts on that subject? I'll jump on it real quick. It's it's a funny thing that people talk about parentes being expensive. Mm. The cheapest thing about a, a parenti is buying it. <laughs> right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so to, to give you an idea, when we got our first two parentes, oh. 10 rats... 10 pink rats each, 10 small mice each, 10 uh, day-old quail each every three days. Yeah. Right? And that progressively gets larger and larger and larger until about six months of age. And then more expensive. Now, you're in a pet shop, Luke. You can tell us what that actually what I, I don't We breed our own rodents, right? So I've got no idea how much that would cost. Retail. Uh, if you were you're if you were buying them through a pet shop, you'd be 
buying somebody a new car, I reckon. Yeah. By the time that kind of equates up, you know, you'd like be looking a, at eighty bucks almost, even more probably. Well, like a pack of seven do little mice are about thirty bucks from memory for adult mice. Yeah. Right. So thirty bucks for mice, thirty bucks for rats. Now that's per li- that's per lizard. Yeah. Right? So if you've got a pair of them, you double that. Yeah. Right. Now what's a you know a parenti selling of anywhere between fifteen hundred to two grand? You know you might be able to get it cheaper for a thousand bucks, whatever it is. Right. That's ten weeks feed. Yeah. Mm. Per lizard. Not, yeah. That's so when right. I say to somebody the cheapest thing about a parenti is the buying of the parenti, I'm not kidding. It's insane. Yeah. And the other part is the enclosures. Now I don't know, Rob, how much how big your enclosures are and all the rest of it, but each one of our large monitor enclosures costs about three grand to build. Yeah, so I've got six by six. Uh, at the moment I've got some in a much smaller enclosure. It's just a big a big aviary. It's about um, three by five. But they're being held over until the pits are done. All the pits are gonna be at least uh, six by six. Well, pretty much all the monitors, all the large monitors will be getting quite large pits. But um, another thing I, I do is I try and keep my enclosures to a reasonable size. I found a lot of species, if I start going too big, um, I don't know what it is. I find this with Odatry as well. If you go too big, they just don't seem to interact the same way. They don't breed the same way. They don't eat the same way. Um, you tend to find ones that like there's a lot of different personalities in monitors and if you get ones a bit shy in a really large enclosure they'll go find the crappy spot to sit um and it's like um scott was saying like it's just you just they, they just find a cool spot that's damp for some reason and they go sit over there while everybody else is happy so um yeah i think six by six is what i'm going to do if i decide i want to go bigger uh, later then I'll work on that. But um, I'm looking at pits for these things um, using the uh, – it's a, like a two mil thick um, poly sheet. So I'll be digging that into the ground uh, and doing open pits for these. Obviously only really – like pretty much adults will be going in there. And even the sandies, I'll be doing some really big uh, piles of, um, of logs and um, – tubes and things like that just because where we are up here in the rainforest we do get a lot of raptors and whatnot as well um i doubt they'll play with the pranties but um i am a little bit worried about even just sandies up here they'd like to uh, go after chooks but yeah so um yeah six by six i think it's been pretty good for the pair i've got down there i know this trio we kept it a six by six for many years by the previous owner so have you thought about using poles and and running um veggie net across the top yeah i mean considering it um my biggest worry about doing that is just where we are the trees in the side of the clearing we do get a cycling come through they're likely to come down if they hit the net and push the net down it's going to make it easier for them to get out and half a tree hanging on the side of the enclosure so that's actually my biggest worry um it's, I keep going through a lot of different things in my head. I think part of it is going to be waiting until the inclo- until those um, uh, pits are done. And once they're done, I'll probably just try and work in my head exactly how I'm going to do things. It's um, you build enough enclosures to know you, you get an idea, but you sort of got to get halfway through it to start tweaking how you want to do things. Um, 
even like you're saying, you need a, a dry spot. So I'm trying to work on my ideas is, you know, do I do a shelter? Do I do an overhang and get concrete tubing in, like, you know, the concrete um, pipes? Do an overhang with that and build rock up on top of it? Um, you know, I'm not – probably a combination of both is what I'm thinking, to be honest. Um, what, what we use for some of the larger stuff is we get eskies. Yeah. Big hinge top eskies, drill a hole on the side of a bit of 100 mil PVC pipe on the side or 150 mil PVC pipe, leave, yep. bury the whole thing in the ground and leave the lid exposed. Yep. Right. And then throw a bit of um, matting or log or whatever over the top of the over the top of the lid, so you don't have to look. You don't look in your enclosure and see this stupid fucking esky in there. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. But the beauty of that is, is when it's when it is wet or you haven't seen your monitor in in three months and you're a little bit concerned. It's easy to check. Can, yeah, you can get to it, and then we fill it in winter. We fill them up with um, straw. Yep. Yeah, I've done that before with um, with Bluey. I did that last year with the Sandies. They seem to be pretty happy with that. Um, I've actually yeah, the works a trade. Oh, I, they love it. Um, the six by six I've got. I dug a IVC cut in half into the ground for that one, and I filled it up with some sand. I was hoping they'd use that as a lay box, but she chose the weirdest area. You tie Avery for that, but <laughs> you know, which we can understand. But see, some of the things I'm working through on my mind is at the moment is um, so I was getting the trenches for the edges dug down to 60 um, to put in netting, mesh, whatever, uh, so they can't dig out. Although I haven't seen a lot of that activity with the parentes and the six by six, they don't tend to dig too much. Excuse me, a dog slipping its tail everywhere. Um, but what I am a bit worried about is up here and sort of around the time Parenti's lay, Sandy's lay, uh, the weather's really, really uh, unpredictable. So you'll have a week of 33 beautiful sunny. The next week you'll get a full week of just drizzle, rain, you know, occasional cyclone, dumping, that sort of thing. So part of what I am worried about is uh, the girls just starting to dig if I don't mesh up the bottom at all, they can dig wherever they want. They won't be able to dig out of the enclosure. But they'll be able to dig their burrows, bury the eggs and whatnot. I'm, I'm a little worried that we'll get to one of those days where they're just about ready to dig and then we'll have a big downpour and they won't be happy and the burrow will get flooded and it'll all be dud eggs. So I'm still debating whether I look at doing some sort of, um, uh, was it like nylon mesh, even though I've dug, the trenches down, do a nylon mesh across the base and still do a layer of rock on top of that and only dig in a few different tubs here and there that are above ground level, like with a good lip. Um, so they always have somewhere to dry, like semi-dry at least, to um, use to lay. Uh, but, again, it's one of the things where I need to get – unfortunately, I need to get the pits made first. And once they're made, I can't actually get the tractor in there to dig the holes easily. So <laughs> – yeah. Get the shovel. <laughs> yeah, well, I did the last one with the shovel, so that was fun because I was expecting to lay the next, you know, three days and she was digging weird spots, so I just jumped in there with the shovel and the matic and the male was coming up going sort of, what are you doing? I'm like, you please stay away from the matic, dude. I really don't mind. <laughs> hit my parenting with a shovel or a matic. But, um, yeah, so I rushed all that, filled it up with uh, half-ton sand, and she still went and laid in the corner. 
typical monitor. Oh yeah. The best part about that is thinking about how much that sand costs you and all those headaches. And... <sighs> yeah, I know. I know. Especially when you've got so many monitors and you've got all the feed animals as well. And no afternoon is yours. Like it's you know, you finish work, bang, you're out there, you're checking the mice got war, you're checking their feather, they haven't flooded. Um, checking all your animals that even though you know, yesterday you did, did a big feed and everybody got water yesterday, you still have to walk through. You've got to check all that. And it's minimum two to two and a half hours just for me to do a proper check and open every enclosure and check all the feeders. And that's without me getting sidetracked. Um, so when you've got an afternoon when you're running around go, I've got to dig a fucking 1.2 by 90 centimetre hole down to, you know, about 80 and then get the ute in with all the sand and carry it in bucket by bucket. Yeah, it's, it's fun. And then when they go find the corner, you're like... <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to acquiring these animals, guys, do you find um, specific breeders that work with the species or do some of them kind of have to just be purchases by chance in case you see something pop up? Mine's all by chance. Yeah. Um, mine's been fibers. I've allowed me fibers. <laughs> I've <made> them fibers. <laughs> you know, it, it, you, you've been around long enough and you sort of know who's got what and, yeah, you know, you go, oh, yeah, I'd like, I want some of these and I want some of those and, and da-da-da-da-da, you know. So, um, yeah, pretty lucky. I mean, the, the Mertens that we got, the Mertens we had, uh, the, the Mertens pair that we had were animals that people couldn't look after. Um, yeah. They, you quite often see Mertens and, to a lesser extent, mangroves, get kept by somebody and they look great when they're yay long. Then they're in a four-foot tank and they're this long now, they're three and a half feet, four feet long and they're shitting everywhere and the filters aren't handling it and it's making a huge mess and it wants to eat them because it's always hungry and they're scared of it. <laughs> and it's not this this perfect friendly thing that they always thought it was going to be. And... You know, they go to open the enclosure and they get a welt on them or they get a tail whip across the face and usually that's about the last time that they they want to do it. Yeah. And no one wants a tail whip from a Mertens with, with scummy water. It's it's not a pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. The amount of times that... Because, like, we, the way we kept our Mertens, we used to have them on we had a 2.4 by 1.2 by 600 deep pond and then we built a form ply roof over the top of that that went over two-thirds of it and then we put a aviary on the top of that right so the yeah. whole bottom of the enclosure was this area that they could swim but only 800 of that was sort of exposed so it was like this big undercroft bank that they could get in and out of and then they had a, a tube off to the side of it and all the rest of it and they'd literally, as they'd see you coming, they'd jump off one of the branches that was sitting up the top. And from a height of 2.4 metres, they'd jump and do this big belly flop splash, <laughs> which is awesome because it's exactly what you see them do in the bush. Right? Yeah. When you're not seeing them at Lock Bully Rock Hole where they're fucking common as hell and they're friendly and all the rest of it. They literally jump off a branch and they land in the water. And ours used to pick it up that... Yeah, if I jump off the branch and when I get close, we'd throw the rats. 
right? And so they learnt to do to do these belly flops, and then next thing you know, we're getting splashed by this water, and it doesn't take much for a Merton Dornemont to fail a water up. <laughs> no. Yeah. I can only imagine that it would be very similar to a mangrove, the amount of times I've had to bloody get the fishnet out to get some floaters off the top of the water. It's just, yeah. It it's worse. They're bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I've got um, a few young Mertens at the moment. Um, I basically just kept the whole clutch from last year back. And uh, one thing I've learned very quick, quickly with young uh, Mertens is they'll sit in water a lot more than the adults do. They'll literally just sit in a tub of water all day. But the problem is that I put them all in enclosures that have got fine sand because I'll cycle a lot of those enclosures for basically any hatches. You know, I'll do a quick clean out, get rid of any once over, um, filter everything, and then, you know, new hatches go in. But you put young Mertens in, they sit in the water all day, they pop out, they run across the sand, they jump in, back into the water, back out, and um, every two days I'll have a tub that's, you know, probably what the – 20 centimetres deep, full of sand. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, next time, make a note that you're going to put in some really big gravel in there for them because, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. And, then, you know, and they, you know, sorry, I've got dogs everywhere. Um, <laughs> um, and, yeah, so they like to uh, make a fair bit of mess and crap in that water as well. So you, you Try to go in there and clean it out, and you've got uh, four Mertens in one little enclosure. You're trying to uh, one little uh, water tub, and you're trying to get them out, and that's when they start flicking their tails everywhere. And yeah, I usually have to have a shower before I start cooking dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you guys do start off with hatchlings, how do you actually house them? Like, obviously, it's going to be probably a little bit different to the adults. Do you want to kind of just give us some tips on how to raise some some of them while they're a bit smaller? I hand them to my wife. <laughs> Perfect. They just come back to me when they don't when they're too big and they're being nasty and they want to try and kill it. Um, no, no. The reality of it is, is that um, we set them up usually inside basking light, full spectrum lighting, um, and then the key that we find is is keeping them warm, but also making sure that they have a good, varied diet. It is not, there's no Catholic diet here. It's not just crickets. It's not just mice or mice parts or twerky mints or chicken necks or fish or whatever. We try and give them as much variation as they can, right? You know, they might get a bit of dog food one day. They might get a bit of this. They might get a bit of that. And the whole idea is to mix it up. And by mixing up whole pro items and all the rest of it, you might get a miss of a type of vitamin from mice or rats and you might get a miss from if you only feed chicken or you might get a miss if you only feed crickets. And by varying it up, you tend to find that your animals are a little bit more happy to try new things and, and all the rest of it. So when they once they get to a, a bigger size and you can slow off on the food on them, you find that those monitors are a much more rounded happier animal and willing to take more different things um the other thing that we're we're really sort of stringent on is that we don't bully our animals right this whole idea that you know this huge big mitt is coming to to grab them all the time is bloody scary it's scary for these things they're not designed to be picked up they don't want to be picked up 
and stress, if an animal's stressed out, their immune system becomes compromised and then you have to have all these other issues. And, you know, you've got to remember in the wild these things aren't designed to live in big groups. So cage mates will cause stress. Now, a good keeper can manage that stress as long as he's watching close, he or she is watching closely and has spare enclosures ready to go that they can pull said animal out and put it into the other one. So that animal that's, that is struggling isn't struggling the whole time to its detriment. Um, that goes from almost all lizard keeping, regardless of whether it's a varanid or a skink, um, any of those things you can find. And we end up, you know, we've got pits out the front that have male eastern blue tongues and male blotch blue tongues and Cunningham skinks from, you know, Sydney Cunninghams and New England Cunninghams and all these weird and wonderful things have all gone into this one pit together because they all happen to be the ones that got beaten up by their cage mates, right? And so because they don't recognise each other as being a threat to each other, you don't get the bullying in there. But what we found is the minute that you do that, you minute you find that you don't have those issues. So stress is a huge, huge thing for them. Um, having hides that work, having basking sites that work, and one of the problems with basking sites is we often see basking sites that are too small. All right? Yeah. We're trying to emulate the sun. The sun is a big, big thing, right? The whole lizard heats up at the same time as opposed to just a little spot. Little, little spot, spots yeah. are what cause burns, all right? Um, while they see might... see that time too. Sorry, go on. You, you do see that quite a lot, the um, monitors getting burns and stuff because obviously they haven't got... He's um, yeah, like, 100% like that you see a lot of just single singular little hot spots or people use um, some of the lamps that they have a really nice high output, like a halogen, a really, really concentrated spot. So sometimes it's as simple as making sure you put a bit of mesh underneath that and that'll help diffuse it. But the real issue is that people don't think that you've got an animal that the longer it takes the heat up, the longer it's going to it's going to sit under that light and not go off and do other things. So if you've got an animal that's barely getting enough heat um, to be comfortable and to work how it's meant to work, it's just going to sit all day underneath that light. And that hot spot on it's just going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. And, yeah, it's it's a it's a big thing, you see. It's uh, it's a real issue. You, you want them to be able to go under a really good hot spot, heat up as fast as possible with their whole body, and then they take off. You won't see them sunning that often if, if that's the case. So, mm. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Um, I don't like the idea of halogen bulbs with anything bigger than a lot of small animals because they just they have such a focused beam that I've even seen burns on things as like, you know, an adult pygmy bearded dragon if they're not used correctly, you know, and that's not a big animal at all. That's right. But it's um just the incorrect globe for the incorrect animal. I mean, the other thing you, you can, can do is a halogen, though. You can use a halogen, but you don't use one, you use... Yeah, you use multiple. That's what I was about to say, is you use multiples mm. in concession with each other or whatever to kind of make a, a bigger, broader spot so then the animal does heat up more evenly so then you don't have that focused beam in the centre of their back. You know, Arcadia's just brought out a, an array, what they're calling a lighting array. I, I hate to think how much it's going to be worth. Um, is that the one with the UV in it as it's well? It's got as a UV, it's got three halogens... And I think it's got uh, you can put deep heat emitters into it as well. Um, yeah. 
one of the one of the issues with with lighting is that and, and heating. I mean, heating and light. I suppose the thing is, is that lighting is a collective term. Okay, so heating encompasses is is a part of lighting as opposed to the other way around, right? So the I R A B and C. So infrared radiation A, infrared radiation B, infrared radiation C is what we know as heat, right? So it's just a wavelength and an intensity. So a wavelength and intensity of that then transposes it across to the animals. Now, IRA has a different penetrative value than IRB and IRC, right? Now, basically, and this is in basic layman's terms, the lower the letter, so C, the less penetration. So with a heat mat or a heat cord, which emits IRC, you're only getting, you can get quite warm temperatures, but it doesn't penetrate deeply into the animal. Okay. IRB and IRA penetrate further into the animal, heating up the core of the animal. It's also why when you go outside, you go, oh, it's quite nice when I'm standing out in the sun, right? That's those infrared radiation reacting on you and going, hey, this feels good, right? Yeah. So what the monitors are looking to do is not only reach their preferred temperature. Now, when you get your temp gun out and you temp gun that surface and that surface is saying 45 degrees, if it's being a, a surface that's heated up by IRC at 45 degrees, it's 45 degrees on the outside, but it doesn't penetrate that far into the animal. With a big lizard like a big monitor, that doesn't penetrate far enough into the core. So that monitor goes, yeah, I'm getting warm on the outside, but I'm still freezing on the inside, and he literally cooks. Yeah. Right? And that's where you see these horrific burns where people have only given heat mats to pythons or they've only given heat mats to to large, large reptiles, and they get these huge burns on their bellies. Um, so infrared radiation is really important, and the only way that we can get that infrared radiation is via decent lighting or via the sun yeah right there's no other way around it right an alternative to that is a thing like a radiant a radiant heater the old radiant heat is the glow orange that yeah. we used to have in our houses in your bathrooms well, and stuff you know i used to have in my house i'm probably a bit older than most of you guys so i had one too right so those things there they let off a lot of heat but they used to let off irb and a bit of ira okay so that was good Halogens will produce a lot of IRA, a bit of IRB. Uh, deep heat emitters are mainly IRB with a bit of IRA as well. Right? So, you know, that's why these deep heat emitters are so important for a lot of this stuff. But what's better than all of it combined is getting them outside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we're never going to be able to rep- – well, maybe one day we will, but, yeah, replicating the sun is a a hard thing. So you're kind of whacking everything into them if you are actually using the sun. That's something that even I'm considering is setting up some small outdoor pits where I am just to be able to get my small monitors outside from time to time to actually, you know, when the weather's good, obviously, but just to be able to give them that actual good stuff rather than just the artificial stuff. So the other thing that's really important about about this, so, you know, you, you talk about heating, but lighting sort of falls in hand in hand with that. Is that we have a visual spectrum between I think it's three hundred and thirty odd nano, three hundred and forty nanometers, I think it is, through to about seven hundred and seven hundred and eighty or so, or whatever it is, um, between infrared 
and uh, ultraviolet, right? Reptiles can see outside of the scope that we can. Yeah. Right. So they can see into the infrared, and they can see, and some can see into the infrared, into the infrared ultraviolet. ultraviolet as well, right? So because they can see on both sides of that spectrum, they see the world differently to what we do. Yeah. Okay. And because they see the world differently to what we do, the globes that we have in our kitchen or whatever, that's designed for the human visual spectrum, not the reptile visual spectrum, which is very different. So if you don't give uh, UVA and UVB to your animals, which they can potentially see in, it's imagine like you looking in black and white. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> and you see this quite often where you have animals that have been kept inside the whole time. And then you bring them out, you bring those animals outside for the first time and it's like, what the hell's just happened? And these animals stress because they've never seen colours like this, but this is how they're actually meant to meant to see things. Yeah. So whenever we're moving animals outside, we always do it slowly. We don't just do it in one big hit. We take them out slowly, bring them in, bring them out, bring them in, bring them out, get them used to it before we leave them out. Um we also time it as well. So we'll only take animals outside of the room, outside of our herp room and putting them outside permanently. We'll only do that in autumn, right? So summer, into summer, into autumn. So that animal's got a reasonable amount of time before winter to get used to how um, southeast Queensland behaves uh, rather than just a big shock to the system of yeah. sticking them out in the heat. Or sticking out in the cold. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Lot of uh, so, sense. as as far as um, the cages go for these hatches, like obviously warmth and, and lighting is very important. But how do you go about um, giving them some security? I know Rob's got a few techniques with that as well. Some some sort of decor and stuff that you like to chuck in there. Oh yeah. Oh, so- um- Basically, when I start off, um, they'll be in some of the larger URS enclosures I've got um, when they're young. I've got my metal halides on them and usually a backup. I've been experimenting with the DPs a bit um, or just some of the smaller um, halides here and there. And um, I sort of just keep them in there probably for uh, two or three months until I know they're eating quite well and uh, they're quite happy. Uh, and then I move them into a slightly larger timber enclosure outside um, well, it's actually it's in one of my sheds, but I've got it set up in such a way that um, the top half is a big open mesh. Like it, basically, it gets afternoon and morning light coming through, and during the day they get normal heat. Um, it is a bit juggling. We're trying to make sure I've got proper heat coming into the enclosure um, during the rest of the day, but uh, it's it's the sort of get the natural UV coming into the um, into their enclosures while also still keeping them pretty warm. Um, which is, can be a bit of a struggle up here. As I said, we get a lot of fluctuations even in summer. We'll get 25-degree days one week and then, you know, it's 32 the next week. So um, that can be a bit of a struggle. Once I'm happy they're performing like that, um, I tend to move them out to um, the IBCs. I've got IBCs with the top cut off and um, didn't mesh on top of that. Pretty much all through these enclosures, uh, as many hollows as possible, uh, many crawl spaces, um, I screw like um, bark and whatnot to all the walls as well so they can get up behind the bark. Uh, a big thing with stress with monitors uh, or probably reptiles in general is hides, 
you know, the hides you can buy that are just the hide you put on the ground, they're not sufficient. They want to get in something tight. They want to feel like they're squeezed in. If they're just hiding in something that's dark but they can't feel it on their back you know, and they're not squished in with their belly, it's not really a hide for them. It's just somewhere they're out of light, but it's out of visual range, but um, it's not comfortable for them. So I try and do as many tight spaces as possible, so that's why I do the offset stacks where I've got, you know, just a spacer on one side um, and the tile is down and the spacer on the other side and the other end is down so that you've got a, a really open point and a really thin point and they can find for their size exactly where it's comfortable for them. Um so I, I tend to do that all the way through and, until the IBC is outside. Once they go into a really big enclosure, um, I don't do anything like that because obviously they can push everything around pretty well. Um, and then it's just more to really tight hollows and big stacks of hollows. I'll use um, um, irrigation piping and things like that. Depending on the size, again, I'll use some irrigation piping. I'll try and get something like a paint that's um, – use it on, pond, on, on ponds and it's actually got a um, – uh, texture to it, and I'll run that through the yep. pipes so they can actually get in there, get in tight. They can crawl, like can actually get a purchase on it, pull themselves through, and I end up uh, burying a fair bit of those. But um, my yeah, my basic method is just to make sure as many tight spaces for them to get into as possible. That's not overcrowded, uh, and I just go from there. And um, Scott was saying, mantra: you have to watch what's going on. It's really can easy. To just, is out, you know. Quick tip, you know, a quick tip with your PVC pipes. Yep. Get a thing of glue and just yep. pour some glue and then just throw sand down it and just put them in the sand. Yeah, I was, I was doing that with larger ones. And that um, works that was, Yeah, it's a lot easier because this other stuff I was using was too thick and the larger the pipe, you end up just struggling to get it through. <laughs> end up wasting hours. Um, but, yeah, it all, that's all different options to do, so. The, or the is other it corrugated one that, pipe too because it's got the holes in it. So it, I use them more usually higher up where it's exposed because they're black. So they'll be the spots that get really hot in the sun. Now I'll crawl into those in the morning and then I'll go underneath during the day and then trying to get out of the um, extra heat. The other one that works really well um, is marine carpet. So oh, yeah. Marine carpet and it works as bark. Okay. It doesn't rot, doesn't smell, it's designed to get wet and be in horrible conditions for ages. So you just use a bit of marine carpet and just get a big staple gun and you can staple it to one side of the, the log. And then yep. basically what that does is it staples it up, it gives the animal something they can claw on, but then they can slide up underneath it and they can literally shuttle around just like I wanted it does underneath the bark on a tree. Yep. I might be worth giving it a go. So that works a treat. The other thing that, and it's something that works inside beautifully, tape a pillowcase to the front of your front of the enclosure. Right, you got an animal that's a bit stressy, flap the pillowcase down, and then all you need to do then is you just peel the side back, and you can see in, and that way the animal doesn't see you going past it all the time and stressing out. But also too, it doesn't get stressed by its conspecifics as well in the room. You know, quite often people have a reptile room, so to speak. What they don't consider is that they have predator and prey species sitting yeah. right next to each other all day, every day. You know, Glebopama are, are lizard eaters. That's their, their job is to eat lizards. 
So if you've got an acanthurus or a storoi or something like that so it's sitting alongside a glebo, it looks at that glebo and goes, shit, on lunch the <laughs> whole day, right? So you can have issues there. Now, obviously, the, the captive bred animals, animals that have been raised around those things, they don't tend to stress as much. But with certain things, it does become an issue. Um, no, I've definitely seen that happen before. So, um, so putting up barriers, visual barriers for your animals uh, is really important to minimise stress. And, and stress is that killer because if you have stressed out monitors, you have issues then with feeding, you have issues with um, their mental health. Believe it or not, they do have mental health as well that they need to, you do need to be concerned about. And then on top of that, then you've got stress. And if you've got a stressed out animal, you've got an animal that has a compromised immune system, and that's where you're going to have problems with either laying or infections or whatever, or they don't want to bask properly. And if they don't want to bask properly, then you just see this cascade and it just yeah. rolls down yeah. the hill. And That extends to keeping animals outside. So you don't know what's coming into the enclosures, even if it's just odd insects and whatnot. So if you've got a stressed uh, animal that's got a compromised immune system, yeah, you, they will get a parasite load. It it gets out of control very fast. Uh, again, what you were saying before about having spare enclosures—you have to have, you always have to have spare enclosures. I've got three animals that in the last two weeks I've taken out uh, and put in separate enclosures just because I've been watching them and I've noticed they've stopped feeding. Well, not actually stopped feeding, but they're they're more they're shy, so they have to be separated out. Get the weight back on them. And then they yeah. end up having to go somewhere else again because they're just different personality. They just behave differently to some of the others. They might not move just outgoing for fighting for food or things like that. But um, when you're keeping large animals out, outside, that's a fact that people have to think about. You just don't get one pit or one aviary outside and go slam it full of, you know, sandies or panos or whatever. You, you've got to have something separate. I've got a Panoptes, my little um, – she's a – Nice girl. It's actually larger than the male. And I've just yeah. introduced them together. Yeah. And in two weeks, I can see that this male's really, really, he's got a strong feeding response and he's always on her back. So tomorrow she's out into another enclosure, but I always make sure I've got that spare enclosure. She'll come good. You know, I'll go out there, I'll feed her up, I'll get her all ready, and I'll slowly try and introduce again. And if there's an issue, well, we'll just keep them separated until everything's right. But you've got to yeah. listen to the monitors. You can't just force them into things. Um, they're, they're a lot smarter than what people really give them credit for. There's a lot Definitely. to work with with these. It's, it's, it's um, so yeah, never should All of our monitors that we've kept to tell the difference between me and Ty, right? And that's not only because I've got a head like a smashed crab, but <laughs> it's, it's also because Ty tends to be the one that feeds them and looks after them more so than yep. myself, right? But I'm the bastard that has to grab them and pull them out of something or I'm the one who's grabbing them that's doing all of these things. And we do that deliberately, right, because we want the animals to be really nice around her. Right? Yep. And that's what tends to happen, whereas they see me and go, oh, shit, is this, gonna be, is this bastard going to leave me alone? Is he going to feed me a rat? Or is he going to pick me up and make me do something I don't particularly want to do? Yeah. Right? And so... We've seen that with our, our goannas, that our goannas are awesome with Ty. For me, they're not so awesome. So um, so that's always an interesting thing. Um, yeah. The intelligence of reptiles is something that 
and their, their mental health is something that I think is grossly underestimated in the hobby at the moment, and I'm starting to see a little bit of a shift. I think it's a great thing. Um, enrichment for all our animals is important. Okay, these things are they are thinkers in the wild. They do things in the wild. Um, we should be trying to emulate and stimulate the minds of our animals that we're keeping as well. Yeah, um, definitely. Now, whether we do that via food, whether we do that by um, puzzles, feeding strategies, problems, that's what we should be trying to do. We should be trying to improve the lives of our animals. So one of the things that we do is that we'll put um, food items inside dog, and we use really strong dog toys right yeah and we'll put a food item inside a ball and we'll put that in with the parentes now we make sure it's big enough that the parenti can't eat the ball right but we want to make sure that they they have to claw at it and do things and try and sort of get some natural behaviors out of our goannas and use that brain to you know try and get that food item out of that ball 100%. 100%. Because if yeah. you watch, if you spend some time watching monitors in the wild, if you get to watch a lacy and yeah. watch a lacy hunting, you watch them, they'll sniff things and they'll tear into stuff and then they'll move yeah. on to something else. It's amazing to watch. Even when they scavenge through a bin, like you watch them, like just, you know, I know it's a bin, but, you know, you watch them, they'll smell the bin, they might do a lap of the bin, they'll climb up the bin a little bit and they'll sit there and wait and have another little smell. They might even jump in and then even rip the bag open kind of thing in the garbage bin. Like, Yeah, and then when know. they're going through that thing trying to find whatever yeah. they've found. That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty awesome. And, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, that's one of the reasons why we like these things is we like seeing these behaviours in these animals. Yeah. So let's stimulate that behavior um the other thing that that we use a lot of now is we we do musical hides which is interesting um and we will use a music what what that is is where we'll take a hide out of one enclosure and put it in with something else without cleaning it right so if we've got a mulga snake or a taipan or something like that i can take it and dump on its enclosure we'll make sure that there's nothing on it that could hurt them like a fang or something like that and then we're going to stick that inside the enclosure and some things monitors will go up to it they'll what the fuck is this it smells interesting it's different you know parentheses are designed to eat snakes yeah so it sits there and it'll spend half an hour trying to figure out where this thing has come from right i'll get in at night when the parentheses are asleep in their enclosures and i'll drag shed skins around their enclosures and shit like that and just to try and get them to do different things. Um, and does it make a difference to their husbandry? I don't know. But it, it stimulates their mind. And I, I think, think it I, I, they, they get bored very easy. They go into a state of torpor where nothing's interesting to them anymore except for feed response. You know, yeah. They do get bored. But one thing I was going to quickly ask you um, in regards to intelligence how would you compare a parenti to a lace monitor? Because to me, parentis are awesome to keep. Laces are great in their own way, but I can watch a lacy, the way a lace monitor thinks, the way it interacts with me. You can see what's going through its head, where a parenti is a bit more like, yeah, cool, whatever, I'm just doing my thing, whereas a lace is really, you know, it's ticking over. It's really, you know, or like a gillens, for example, you know. Out of all the animals I feed every day, a gillens is like a dog where you've got the food, 
and you drop the food and it just goes for your finger instead of looking where the food went. It's I think they're maybe the silliest, dumbest of the lot. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, Parentes are an oversized sango in Right. Yeah. Food, 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 Lacey's and Merton's, for me, are the two, by far, the two smartest. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, it's relatively small sample size. But, um, you know, both of, you know, all of our monitors will have, will come to our their names, right? So we've done a bit of target training with them and, you know, not, not holistically target training, but we use a clicker and then we'll say their name. And then I'll go to the feed door. So we've got feed doors in our enclosures, um, which are different to the entry doors, which are, was the best thing I ever did. I never feed yeah. them through the, the entry doors. If I'm opening that entry door, then the lizard knows I'm coming in there. So it doesn't associate yeah. that with food. I've been considering doing the same thing because otherwise every time a door opens, there's show shampoo food and they just, yeah, it you just watching their eyes, just watching the pupils and it's, yeah, it's something I think I need to do with a lot of the larger animals, so you can actually. So get the other thing that we is where we've got multiple large goannas in an enclosure, multiple feed doors. So one on the left, the males only getting fed on the food door on the left. The other ones only getting fed through the door on the right. And are they just like a small, like ten centimeter, ten centimeter, or something big enough? One hundred fifty mil, one hundred fifty mil. Yeah. So big enough that you can easily get a rat through. Yeah. Without causing too much growth. So it's a matter of going spot and spot will walk up to his end of the um, up to his end of the enclosure. I'll have the rats already sitting there. I'll have rats sitting at the other end and I'll click my fingers at the other end and I'll just walk between the two. And they yeah. don't and if one tries to eat from the other one, neither of them get to eat. So if the other one goes up to the other end, I just don't feed them. Yeah. I just wait. And it, it doesn't take long, and they go, oh, okay, if I want to get fed, I need to be over here. Yeah. It's definitely crazy how, how intelligent the bigger guys are with that sort of stuff. Like, I, I mean, I, again. I don't know if it's the bigger guys, Luke. I think it's all of them, to be honest. I just don't think that we give the enclosures. I don't think we set the enclosures up in such a way that we can do that sort of behaviour with the smaller ones. Yeah, and I think because the smaller ones, people are just chucking like a handful of crickets in there, or you know, a handful of woodies. You know, you're not actually putting the effort in like you are to feed those, or use like target feeding, or, or something like that. Like you're saying, you use the clicker. No Things one's putting like, in that type of effort with the smaller ones. A lot of the rock monitors are very switched on. Your Kimbo's yeah. will do it. I'm sure you could uh, train Kings. Um, Michelle, you're pretty switched on as well. It may have something to do with being a water monitor and their environment. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of things you can work with the smaller ones. Um, I'm not saying it's just the large ones. Like I have seen, um, I know Cooper does a lot with his smaller, well, his Gildan's monitor where he does like, uh, he just gets the tongs or whatever and taps them together and he realizes that is like a food <laughs> yeah. signal sort of thing and comes running out of yeah. his log for a woody or whatever. 
Um, yeah, I've been doing that with a lot of my stuff, and I tap twice as I walk around before I start getting the feed ready um, in the sheds. And I come back around, everything's out ready. So I've only been doing that for last six weeks just to try it, and uh, it's been pretty interesting already. Some species well, got, not so much, but yeah. Well, you got some um, tongs from A.E. Stoney out of the state. Um, got him to mail them over to us, and they're purple on the end. Like like a bright purple, um, and we use those for feeding. Yes. So there's they a real colour. Color. What's that? Sorry. They associate that colour with feeding. Correct. Yeah. So that's what we're using now, um, and that seems to it's already seemed to they picked up on it pretty quick. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think that's it's one of those things. Um, I'd, I think I'm sure I've seen some videos. I think that Laurie Torini might have done Ackies, maybe. I think I think someone's done Ackies, done some target training with Acanthurus and stuff like that. So it wouldn't surprise me if you could do all of the other smaller things. I mean, the reality of it is, is that Gillens is just like a micro, like a micro sort of lace monitor or anything like that. You know, they yeah. do run around. They do have those things. They, they do have those things. Monitors are basically, you know, they've got big and small. It's a size representation. The brain and things like that is still there. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree. Except for Glebos. Glebos don't exist. Fucking things. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, no, I cannot get onto a Glebo. They're like my unicorn animal. <laughs> as much as a couple of mates keep sticking me yeah, up. Yeah, I must have so. Sending me photos of the Glebos. Oh, yeah, there was four of them the other day. Oh, great, thanks. <laughs> Bastards. Yeah, I have to admit, I do like doing the um, uh, coloured feed tongs for, for my mangrove. I've got these bright pink pair. I can't remember if I got them from you, Rob, or another supplier, but um, they're like a big 50-centimetre pair of, like, fluorescent pink yeah, tongs. Yeah, we brought those big pink ones in, bright green and stuff. i still got a whole bunch, I think, still in the container. I keep bringing them up, but, you know, when you've got too many of something, you lose it all the time, so. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're awesome. As soon as she sees those things come out, though, she's, like, at the glass, just like, yeah, I'm ready for a yabby or a quail or whatever that's coming through that thing. Like, she's just switched on. But it's so funny, like, as we were saying about how smart they are with, like, um, recognition and stuff if my wife walks into that room she doesn't blink an eyelid if i walk in there she's looking at my hands she's looking to see if i've got the tongs like she's switched on to yeah. go this is the guy that feeds me you know she knows the difference she's um yeah well i was there the other day and she was just you know just sitting in the same spot didn't move or anything like that like she wasn't you know wasn't interested yeah yeah they're funny like that yeah you see that with um whenever you go to a zoo and you head over to a zoo and you're going around with the keeper, right? And you, that's probably one of the best times to go around the zoo is when you go around with the keeper that keeps those animals because the animals sit there on display. They're just used to just the masses walking past. And then the minute they see one of the keepers, that they're like, oh, hang on, I know him. He might give you food or she might give yeah. you food. Um, it's, it just goes to show that they do recognise people, that you recognise individual people and they have the ability to recognise individual people in the crowd and associate that with a memory. Now, whether that memory is food, 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 or something else is irrelevant. The, the adage that and the thoughts that people think that reptiles are these animals that are slow and that they're not intelligent and they don't have that 
is really thinking from from the past and we really need to get rid of that thinking yeah another example just to bring it up whilst it's not a large monitor is my frill neck lizard if i go into the cage no chance that he frills up if my wife goes into the cage eh, it might give like a half of a frill if a new person goes into that cage you can guarantee there's a full display you know that's yeah amazing to see what these animals have and you know people just don't give them enough credit i reckon when it comes to that sort of yeah, stuff that's exactly right. i think we've got to be careful though too because it's not even though it's in it's intelligence intelligence and our version of intelligence and anthropomorphizing what what we are saying is intelligent it's it's a very hard way to work out which way it actually is in in actuality so yeah. um I think there's. I think though, I suppose you can say that there's certainly a lot more going on upstairs in the heads of reptiles than than what we initially thought. Definitely. Yeah, just the work needs to be put in to actually quantify it to see how far it actually it goes, how deep it is. So, um, what sort of diet are you actually feeding your young monitors? Um, like, obviously, you're going to be starting with a few different tidbits, but I know uh, well, we've touched on this before, Rob. But I might just get you to even hash over your. your your um, prepared food mix that you you do for a lot of your animals there? Uh, yeah, no worries. Um, I haven't been doing the mixes as much these days. Um, okay. Moving up here, I haven't had – there's not as much stuff available to me. Like I used to use a lot of uh, frozen crickets and things like that and try and make up a mix out of that. Um, so up here, I've been concentrating mostly breeding mice, rats. Uh, we've been buying crickets in still um, and trying to get the woodies happening again, but they really don't like the tropics up here. Um, but, yeah, generally it's as much mixture as I can. Every feed should be a bit different. So uh, one might be something like the uh, the dog food mix, and that's usually just got um, calcium powder and vitamin powder in it. Uh, then it'll be pinkies or chopped mice. Uh, then I'll mince up my own uh, turkey necks and usually a bit of boiled egg and things like that through it as well just to mix it up and get a sort of a high calcium um, content into that. Um, as they get larger, turkey necks are actually really good. They've got a lot of um, uh, a lot more marrow in them. They're a lot bigger and thicker and, and whatnot, um, and they do pretty well. Um, and I just sort of cycle that out. Um, some of the larger ones, they'll get... Yeah, the, the, as I said, the chicken legs or chicken wings, um, very high fat content. So I try and usually focus more on the females with that and that's reasonably occasionally. Uh, I don't like to do it too often because you can definitely tell when it comes out the other end it's not fantastic for them. But um, it's just trying to play with the, the heat variance up here as well. The hotter it is, the quicker they'll lose conditioning. Um, but in general, it's, you know, I try to do whole feed. So the rodents... Um, your mixes themselves. Uh, I'm trying to move a container up the top. Again, moving up here, I'm still behind the eight ball. I'm still, still trying to get a lot of things happening that I sort of had half worked out down south. I'm um, trying to get the container up, get the mice breeding cranking even better. Um, I've got some quail now. Um, I just need to get an incubator to get them cycling over so I can just chuck quail in. Uh, and I'll probably get the uh, Jap and the King quail for that. Uh, we're about to set up some uh, aquaponics. When we do that, I'll be having the red claws and uh, jade perch. So the idea is that when we catch those things, a lot of the offsets of that, we get ground up for the animals as well. Um, these are all planned. So I never think I'm keeping things particularly spectacular. I'm always, I'm always tweaking. It's, a, it's always a game. Like I'm always doing more things. 
Um, as how, I said, how are you going to prevent? Yep. How are you going to prevent yourself breeding a whole shitload of toads? Sorry. How are you going to stop yourself breeding a shitload of toads when you're breeding red claws? Oh, this is all going to be up in, um, you know, the above ground pool kits you can buy? Yep. Uh, they're like 1.2 high. We're doing it all on that sort of stuff. So solar pumps, all above ground, nothing goes up to it. We've got one pool at the back of the house here that we've had set up for about uh, two and a half years now. Nothing's got into it except the odd uh, tree frogs. So. It's been um, pretty good. So that's the plan. That's the way we want to go. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's, when we go down the bottom, I'll grab some um, different fish. Frozen fish, I think, don't believe is the best from what I've read before. Uh, it's missing. It's got to probably say what it's missing. Create deficiency, being too much frozen fish. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Thiamine ace. That's so, it, yeah. So what happens is if you feed certain fish, to, to reptiles or amphibians, you can get a thiaminase deficiency. Um, yep. It's quite easy to fix by actually using, you know, Vetafarm produce a tablet for seabirds. You can turn that into a suspension and crush it up and feed it to the animals. And it just no, fixed. It, it fixes it. It actually resolves really, really quickly. Um, but it causes a chemical imbalance, which causes the nervous system to go out of whack and it screws them real fast. So the animal's okay one day and then it's doing all sorts of weird and wonderful neurological stuff the next day. Um, something you've got to be really conscious of when you're feeding particularly goldfish and carp, but, but some of those other sort of detritus-type feeding fish um, and not varying up the diet. So if you vary up the diet, it fixes that up pretty quickly. So Yeah. Um, I've actually you know, finally found that um, while the mangroves are pretty happy with a bit of a seafood diet, the... Mertens are a bit hit and miss in some of the uh, fish I feed to them. They don't like um, some of the fatty fish like the sardines or whatnot if I chop them right up. Um, yeah, they're, they're just they're very picky. They actually don't eat rats. They don't like rats at all. They like more of uh, quail, mice. But the rats, for some reason, they've just they knock them straight back, like rat pups and whatnot. But they do pretty well otherwise. I love mice. I certainly, I think mice are probably their favourite. I think mice are crack for, for mertens. Um, my but, male, yes, my female's super picky. But again, as I said, personalities. I've got um, pilbarensis. I've got two lots that hatched within a week of each other. One lot will eat almost anything I put in that enclosure. Another lot will eat uh, crickets and turkey mints. They won't touch um, roaches. They're not really partial to pinkies or minced mice. They really don't like anything else. They're a bit uh, a bit of a nightmare. The other two, everything. doesn't matter. Yeah. No, nothing. They've all been moved through probably four different enclosures now. It's always the same. So sometimes if you've got animals that behave strangely, they're not particularly interactive or they don't feed well, they hide a lot, things like that. Sometimes it's as simple as changing enclosure. You might not know exactly what, the issue is what changes it, but I can get some orientalists that will always scatter eggs, will never come out, very scattered feeders, um, and move into a new enclosure that's the same size. Everything else is pretty much the same, just hides in different spots and whatnot. Um, but something about it, maybe the heat gradient, maybe where it's located, 
and all of a sudden they'll be out all the time and they'll be you know avid feeders and they'll lay properly and you know, all sorts of things. So when yeah. I get some strange animals, sometimes I just chuck them in a different area, a different enclosure and see how it goes. Um, you know, I don't can't really nut out what's going on there, but <laughs> I just got things in my head the way I do stuff. I mean, you know, keep them so long, I just do things. I don't think about it. I don't write it down. I just go, oh, yeah, I know what's happening yeah. here. I move things on and go from there. So, What sort of, um, with your hatches and stuff, what sort of setups are you setting them up in? Are you just using like your melamine enclosures or are you making your own stuff or? Um, I make everything. Uh, larger enclosures are all out of um, uh, form ply. You know, I basically yep. seal up silicon and whatnot and rough it up. Um, I just like form ply because it's a bit more um, damp tolerant for where we live. Um, you know, mold grows on windows up here randomly, so you do get a big community <laughs> coming through. Um, and also being like your 17 mil retains heat a fairly fair bit better. But yeah. for the real small stuff when they're fresh out, um, they pretty much go until I've got the old plastic URS enclosures in one shed, and that shed's always got a much higher ambient temp, uh, and they go into those. Um, yeah. I keep them there until they look a bit too cramped, and then I pull them out. Um, as I was saying, some, especially with young animals, I don't put them in real large enclosures. I like to keep them pretty small. Um, really lets me have an idea of what they're up to. I can see each one individually. And as soon as I can see something's not feeding, I can pull that one straight out, put it by itself, and judge by that rather than a big enclosure where they just go off and hide. And I'm like, always like, where is the other one? It's always hiding somewhere. I don't like to mess with things very much. Like, um, Scott was saying before, <laughs> the more you interact, like the more you're in that enclosure moving things around, the more stress you're putting into them. So even the ones that are yeah. feeding or the ones behaving or the ones that are pretty strong, if you're messing with them too much, it's not great. You're better off. Just taking it easy, don't stress them, and um, uh, it's a bit of intuition, I suppose. Like trying to work out who's doing okay, who's not doing okay, and trying to get it before it becomes an issue. Um, but you do see it pretty quick, like in the Mertens enclosures at the moment. Um, one of the reasons I split them up and put them back in two smaller enclosures, I put them in a uh, 1.2 by one meter, and I found in that was actually too much space. And a lot of them were going to sleep in the cooler spots. Being a large enclosure, it was hard to get temps up, and it was an enclosure on the outer um, sheds. It gets a lot of um, fresh air through rather than being closed shed. And um, you had to make a decision to pull them inside, and now they're thriving again. They were just slowing down and eating, and it's just hard to keep on top of them. So, yeah. And also, a lot more hide spots between all of them, and they were grouping up. And, uh, yeah. Are you staggering your enclosure sizes as they get bigger? So you're like going from yeah, smaller to bigger to bigger? Yeah. 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 No, it's. I've played a lot through the years with putting things in a really large enclosures and I yep. have not ever found it to be beneficial, not for keeping, yeah. not for keeping an eye on what's going on, making sure everybody's happy and healthy. Um, usually yeah. the larger, like back in Sydney, I used to have orries in like a two metre by 1.8 by 1.2. And they yep. get sort of lost in there because, again, you're trying to heat an entire enclosure that size. And even if your ambient temp's great in the shed, um, I don't know, I just I did not find it to work that well for me. Uh, so I brought, as I said, um, I, had, I was keeping a lot of other species outside, like kings, for example. And the fluctuation in temperature, I found them very hard to breed and very hard to um, keep weight on, bring them inside, put them in small enclosures, and they've been perfect. Everything's gone back to normal. 
Every day I walk past and then they bang on, they bang on the perspex. I don't know how many times I've opened doors and I've had to catch them midair and put them back in um, yeah. just because they're sort of back to where they were. They've got that high interaction, um, um, that high feed response. Is what I normally aim for, it's the feed response. Um, yeah. Okay? I don't care if they don't want to interact with me specifically, um, but as long as they eat well, you know, I can see they're eating well, um, that's number one point for me. I just, yeah, yeah. I have everything else to know. My temps are pretty good. Um, uh, the other thing is some species obviously like to burrow a fair bit. Um, so I do try and make sure I put some boxes in there and experiment with a bit of that with the smaller ones. Um, specifically, if you're going to put a lot of heat into smaller enclosures, I think a lot of people mistake um, some animals being a burrowing species when it's actually they're so hot in the enclosure they're looking for a way to dig down to a cooler environment. Um, and that is necessary, putting something in a corner so they can sort of get out of it, at least exhibit that behaviour. Um, yeah. Sandy's a big one for that. Um, Ackies too. I find Ackies don't try and burrow unless they're too hot, and that's when they all start going into the boxes when they're not grabbing. So. Yeah. Um, and again, that. it's like large monitors are just large, smaller monitors. You, they all yeah. sort of follow through. They just one does more damage. Have you ever been nailed by any of your larger stuff? No, 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 no. I um, I'm, I'm very cautious with that. For the parentes, I usually go in with a rake, and they actually know what the rake is these days. It's when they're getting a bit too much. I just put the rake in front of me and I push them back. Um, and they haven't been trying to be assholes about that lately, which is nice. Of course, the hotter it is, the more they try their uh, luck. Um, but generally, no, I'm um, shush. You're a Dane. I know you like to talk. Don't talk to me right now. Um, it's yeah. I wait. I go in with I go in with the gloves that you know the um, glass cutting gloves. I go in with that sort of stuff. I go in my boots. I don't go in thongs because um, being complacent enough for small monitors. And honestly, I hate hospital. So I'll do everything I can to make sure I don't get tags. I know sooner or later that's going to go completely fucking wrong because I'm usually feeding them after a couple of beers. But still, <laughs> not been lucky so far. What about you, I've been, bitten. I've been bitten by lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that nod. <laughs> um, I've been lucky though. Um, yeah. So I've, I've been nailed by some. Um, some bigger stuff, um, but it's been dumb luck, I suppose, is why I haven't haven't sort of suffered really badly from it. Um, if you get bitten by a large monitor, one of the first things you need to do is you need to grab that monitor by the neck and don't pull your hand out and do resist everything you can to not pull out because you will literally get sliced open like a set of snake knives. Um, and if there's any tendons or anything like that that's on that side of there, they will be getting sliced straight through. Um, and then you're looking at microsurgery to try and get it repaired. Um, so there's more than one people, a person that I know of, have had to get microsurgery done on their hands because of interactions with, with ranids. Um, and a small goanna can do it. It doesn't need to be a very big goanna to, to, to really light you up. Um so, um, yeah, the other thing is too is that it's it's fairly clear that that are venomous, 
um, while the venom is, is not toxic enough to, to cause any significant issues in people, um, any foreign proteins could potentially cause uh, issues with things like anaphylaxis down the track. Uh, so, yeah. uh, it's just a quick not, note on that. Um, have you been bitten by a Scolaris in comparison to other yep. small monarchs? They, yep. they can't. Yeah, so the Coranda Scalaris hurt more than the than the Similis from the yeah. Northern Territory. Um, this is obviously just my own sliding scale. Um, <laughs> Prasinus King, like hell. Um, Semi Remix hurt like hell as well. Um, Primordius have got a real whack about them as well for a little monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, King Aurum. Um, Chlorostigma suck ass as well. I got chewed on by one of those for about five minutes not too long ago. Um, it just didn't want to let go, and I wasn't going to let it go. So it eventually it was like a war of attrition between who was going to, to let go. Eventually got the, got tired, I think, and then sort of spat my thumb out, and I proceeded to bleed everywhere for, for the next, uh, next 15, 20 minutes. But the stinging and the throbbing from that sucked. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was I, it a big arm? Belt all up my arm from that. Oh. Wow. So, um, yeah, I'm a little bit cautious too because I'm I've got an allergy to, to certainly to some venomous snakes. Um, so, you know, I might have a predisposition to to uh, squamate venom. So I've got to be a little bit cautious. But um, you look every time I've been bitten, it's because I've been getting too close to it, or I've been photographing it. Yeah. Um, and when I'm photographing, I'm trying to pose in the particular position that I want it to sit in, and it might not like the way that I've moved its head into that particular position, and I go to move its head again, and so it chomps down on my finger. Um, so I think I've been bitten by just about every monitor I've tried to photograph, um, with the exception <laughs> of real big ones, because the big ones I respect a bit more and try not to get them. Yeah. Um, Do a bit more damage. Yeah, but I mean, for me, it's it's wash it out and then glue it up. So yeah. super glue works a treat for that. Yeah, I had one of the young girls at work cut herself with a razor blade by accident the other day, and I went to glue her up, and she's like, "Why the hell are you using super glue?" I'm like, "You wait, it's like magic." <laughs> yeah, works a treat, and you don't get a scar from it either. Usually, yeah. No. Not, that we're, not that we're recommending any medical yeah. course or any <laughs> medical professionals. <laughs> uh. <sighs> yeah, so um, it'll be an interesting state of affairs. I think that's the interesting thing too about keeping large varanids is that there is a risk to keeping large yeah. varanids. Um, while little Johnny can go into a pet store and theoretically go and buy himself a lace monitor, Probably not the smartest thing for little Johnny to do. Um, and I, I think that we're going to see at some point in time that there may be some form of legislation in regards to keeping large varanids and large boards. Um, you know, there's no anti-venom for lack of oxygen. Um, we've all know of stories where people have been uh, severely hurt by, by large large pythons um the mechanical injuries that can come from large varanids are pretty significant as well so yeah um are they on your basic category license up there in queensland or are they on are restricted i think they're on the basic category i think yeah, parentheses are on that 
Brenty's on the higher higher level, I think, but pretty sure Lacey's oh, I'm not sure Brenty's are, I think. I think pretty much everything is just I think the only ones you need only monitors need any sort of special category for are the prasses. Like um I have I don't to know. I've got to buy a security permit, so I don't have to worry about that shit. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I should just yeah move everything that... up here for it. <laughs> yeah, that? I was going to say Rob moved up there just so he could keep more monitor species. Oh, yeah, well, that's it. The rest of the family's still a bit like um, you know down south. Like you guys ever going to come back down south? And like I have to give up half the stuff I really enjoy keeping. There's no way I'm going south. Yeah, I'm loving it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, really, at the end of the day, why you can't keep some of those things in the southern states. Yeah. Um, Especially not when you're talking the small stuff, like a lot of the Adatria yeah, and right. that. Yeah, but I think there was a reason. Oh, it wasn't the reason through the grapevine. There's that Pilgrimsis were never legally allowed to be exported or something out of WA. No one ever legally exported them out, so then WA got got the knickers in a twist over it and went to New South Wales Parks and Wildlife and said, no, we don't want anyone keeping pilgrances because they've never been legally collected from our state. And so yeah, okay. New South Wales turned around and said, well, okay, no worries. And they said, no, that's it. And that's why they said, no, they're keeping them. So um, I think that's, that was the story I heard on the grapevine for, for pilgrances. But it sounds like something New South Wales would do. Yeah. That's right. The amount of times that animals come out on their New South Wales ballot that are correctly, incorrectly identified is, is insane. So, yep, yeah. I think it's good that there is a bunch of stuff on an advanced license down here, in particular a lot of the big yeah, stuff. But same. even little Johnny can still go and get a sand monitor in New South Wales, and you know, even that's big enough to cause some grief. So, you know, at least, at least, well, I mean, Tristus and and. Ackies and Gillens aren't going to do too bad of stuff. They're still going to make you bleed pretty good for a little kid, but, you know, a sand monitor is still big enough to, to do some damage to some people. I think at the same time, too, we've got to remember that, you know, there's inherent risk in just about everything that we do. Mm, that's right? true. There's inherent risk in crossing the road, and we don't think yeah. twice, twice about letting our kids cross the road after we've given them adequate training on how to cross, yeah. cross the said road, right? Um. We don't see people jumping up and down about having having putting a kid on the back of a horse. Yeah. Right? And horses kill 120 in people in Australia every year. Right? Yeah. And I hate to think how many people get injured from horses in Australia or horse-related injuries every year. Right. So there's plenty of dangerous shit that we let our kids do and all the rest of it. However... We need to be responsible and understand that there is going to always be people that are looking to say keeping reptiles is bad. You know, they're all bikies, they're all tattooed, they're all got beards and they're all bastards. Um, reptile keeping does not have that face anymore. Yeah, that's right. With the exception of the four of us who are sitting here now, they've all got <laughs> beards. Uh, and at least a couple of us have got tattoos that I can see. Um, <laughs> But we're not bastards, so, you know, that's, that's all right, I suppose. <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, you know, yeah. the reality of it is, is that, you know, the, the face of reptile keeping is changing. And exactly. it's becoming more and more socially acceptable. Now, my understanding was, is I think, that bearded dragons have surpassed just about everything else in the US now as being one of the Yeah, I've heard pets. that. Yeah. Right. Um, ball pythons are incredibly huge. Um 
I remember it wasn't that much, it wasn't that long ago that New South Wales had a couple of dozen licensed keepers in the state. And then they had an amnesty and then all these people sort of suddenly came out of the woodwork. There was a lot of people keeping reptiles illegally in New South Wales that in back yeah. in the dark ages when they didn't have a licensing system. Um, but, you know, you got how many licensed keepers in New South Wales now? Oh, I wouldn't know. If you go off the numbers on the licence, there'd be thousands. Yeah, yeah. I, think it's over, I think it's over 100,000. Yeah, if you're going yeah. off the licence numbers, because obviously I sell reptiles as a, a living essentially. Yeah. So, yeah, there'd be over about 125,000 on licence or licence numbers yeah. handed out, whether they're actually keeping still or, or what the go is is another story. But, yeah, it's and, a lot and of numbers. you'd have to say that would be, you know, Let's say there's a hundred thousand in New South Wales, or probably seventy five thousand in Victoria. You know, yeah. forty thousand odd in Queensland, it's and probably right. forty thousand across the rest of Australia between WA South Australia, Perth, and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not talking a small amount of people that are keeping these things anymore. No, um, not at all. But it does mean that we have a responsibility to do it in a way that, you know, we want to do it safely for everybody and yeah. And, we want to bring people into the hobby the right way and bringing them in is, is, is providing sort of some form of training and showing them how to do things. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't have or can't responsibly house animals that have a risk to them attached. Exactly. Yeah. When you guys are selling, so say you're selling some of your larger monitors, are you kind of vetting the people that you're selling them to? It doesn't stop with large monitors. It's any yeah. reptile. Everything, yeah, yeah. Any reptile, so I don't care if it's a blue tongue. If I don't think yeah. you know what you're doing or you don't understand what you need to do, you're not yep. getting that animal. Exactly. No sale is worth the life of an animal in my mind. That's exactly right, yeah. Um, that's, that's my opinion. That's Ty's opinion. And, you know, we we can be a little bit pedantic about it. Um, we'll ask for references if, we, if we've never heard of the person before and they're, they're wanting to keep something that is a little bit challenging for whatever reason. Um, because I think that that's what we should be doing as a responsible keeper. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, that's um, been the biggest part of me going through this downsize. Is actually everything's going to people that I either know very well that are competent keepers, or people that I know that have at least had like a relative amount of experience with with certain animals. And it's been so refreshing to kind of go. I'm not just selling to Joe Blow, you know. It's it's. I know that the animals are going to be well looked after and if there are any issues or whatever, these are people that are actually going to contact me and and figure things out or whatever from there. But, yeah, no, it's uh, been quite nice to just kind of keep it in the circle, so to speak, for most most part of it. <laughs> so what, when you want to get it in six months' time, you can get it back? It's pretty much how it goes. Yeah, I'm pretty much <laughs> yeah. gone, you know. That's it's exactly been, how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Jason got half his geckos back yesterday, so... <laughs> Hey, you don't do that with books, though. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. that's the best thing about books is you don't have to feed them because you don't have to feed them. It's like, oh yeah, no, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's going to become more of an addiction for me now. I've already had two new books arrive this week, so yeah. I've been good. I haven't had a book for like a month. Neither have I, actually. I don't think the last yeah, one I got was the Social Lives of Reptiles, which is bloody brilliant. Yeah, right. I haven't seen that one. I might have to. Have oh yeah, it's 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 not cheap. But it's it's cool. yeah. yeah. I thought I heard that getting talked about on NPR or something not too long ago. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was on NPR or maybe. or maybe Carpet yeah, Coffee I think, or something. I think, Eric, I think Eric got it or Bob Rock got it. Yeah. So. Uh, good stuff. 
I hear you guys too have got the most popular reptile podcast out of the NPR stable. Still? Mm. Oh, that's cool. We haven't that's had an good. update. I heard people yeah. bitching about it on Fight Club, I think, the other night. So. Were they? Oh, the Fight Club. Yeah, I've been listening to theirs. I quite enjoy the Fight Club, actually. Yeah, no, I do enjoy that. I just started, I listened to the latest one, but I've got to go back and listen to a couple of the older ones. Is that the one with Nick Mutton? Nick and Casey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was quite good, actually. Good value. I enjoyed that. Cool. Well, guys, it's uh, that time. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Thanks for coming on, guys. We've uh, thoroughly enjoyed this to talk some large monitors. And yeah, 100% right. They're just bigger versions of the small guys. So I don't feel so bad about having the tiny ones now. (laughs) (laughs) Not the size that matters, Mike. (laughs) <laughs> that's what my <laughs> missus keeps telling me <laughs> that's a worry <laughs> no it's uh, good fun alright guys yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on do you guys just want to quickly throw out any sort of information as to where people can follow you or get in contact with you if they want to talk some large monitors uh, yeah if you want to get in contact with me um, or, or Ty hit us up on Nature For You um, or on Instagram or just sort of starting to get used to using Instagram. I kind of like it. It's a lot less bullshit than, than Facebook. Yep. Um, except for the ads. The ads give me the shit. Every yeah. Ad. Um, otherwise, get us through the website. Um, you know, if if there's anything we do to help, we'll usually try and do what we can. But we're pretty busy, so don't, don't get upset if we don't get back to you that minute. Um, but, yeah, happy days. Awesome. What about you, Robert? Awesome. Yeah, for me, um, just hit me up on Facebook on Monsoon Monitors, Instagram, and I'm still working on the website. It's getting there slowly. Um, I should have a lot more information and stuff up there on what I'm up to. Yeah, dogs. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but so, yeah, um, most of the stuff I do is on Facebook on Monsoon Monitors, so check that out. Good stuff. Awesome. All right, guys, we would like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.com and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. Make sure to follow the NPR network on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. As far as contacting us on our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link is on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring on the Beach of Scaly Beasts. I hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. Good night, guys. Good night. Good night.